passage of Scripture we're going to be reading today is found in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 to 17. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 to 17. The title of this morning's message is Refreshed. Refreshed. And as we walk through this particular message, I hope that this might even be a moment of refreshing for you. But if not, I want it to be at least uh, some encouragement as to how you can be refreshed or how you might refresh someone else. And so in this passage of Scripture, when we come to 2 Timothy, uh, just by way of background, the Apostle Paul was not one of the original 12 apostles. He came to know Jesus later after spending several years persecuting the church, ripping families apart, shutting down churches wherever he could find them. And he was the guy that stood and held the cloaks of those who were stoning the first Christian martyr to death, Stephen. And so Paul at one time was very antagonistic to the gospel. It's one of the great transformations in the Bible is when Jesus appeared to him and Paul did a complete 180 and became a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, He is now, as we read these words, he is nearing the end of his life. He's been imprisoned, a couple major imprisonments that we know about in the Scripture. The first occurred at the end of Acts. He's under house arrest. And uh, we, we believe through church history and tradition that that was not his final imprisonment, that he was able to get freed. He traveled, shared the gospel some more, probably in the western regions of the Roman Empire, somewhere in Spain or France or what was called Gaul back then. But this time, he's not going to get out of it. This time, there's an emperor named Nero. Nero's the one who was not fully there. He was crazy and uh, burned down much of the city of Rome. And he ultimately would be the emperor under whom Paul most likely died around AD 64, AD 65. And so this letter contains some of the last words and the last thoughts of this man of God who had suffered much to spread the gospel beyond the Jewish nation, beyond Jewish people, the Gentiles. Unless you're here today and you're uh, Jewish in your ancestry, you can thank God for this man Paul because God used him to bring the gospel that ultimately came to you and me. Second Timothy Chapter 1, verse 15, he's writing to a younger son in the Lord, and he says, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome... He searched for me earnestly and found me. Would you pray with me? Father, we welcome you here. We ask that you would speak to us through your spirit and through your word. Father, each of us comes into this room with needs, some that we're conscious of, many that we're unconscious of, and often needs that no one around us is aware of. But Father, you know us. You know each of us fully. You know our hearts. You know our thoughts. 
you know our needs. We ask, Father, that in these next few moments that you would not allow the enemy to distract our hearts, that you would draw our attention fully to you and what you are saying, and that we would be attentive to your voice. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Just before 1 Timothy and 2 Thessalonians, there's a little book to the left in your Bibles called 1 Thessalonians. Near the end of that letter, in verse 23, it says this. This is not on the screen, but uh, just listen. As Paul closes his letter, probably one of the earliest letters Paul wrote, he said, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if you noticed that. I've made reference to this verse before. But this is one of those places in the Scripture that makes very clear that you are more than, than a bunch of chemicals stacked into a, a pile of skin. You, are, you have a body, and it makes reference to a body. You're also more than just your soul. Typically, we talk about our mind, our will, our emotions, our consciousness. We talk about that in terms of our soul. But this, this verse also makes reference to your spirit. And it's, it's so important you and I understand how we are wired on the inside. Because God made you with a body and a soul and a spirit. That's significant because if you understand how you're composed in your inner person, you can understand even more the importance of the message that I'm sharing with you today about being refreshed. Because your body can be rested, and in a sense, your soul can be, be still, but we're going to really concentrate on that today. But your spirit can be dead. Your body needs food and water in order to live. Your soul requires some kind of intake as well. But your spirit cannot live apart from God. What's really, really missed sometimes when we read the book of Genesis is that it says that man and woman were created and put into the garden, and we say, well, great, he created humankind, and now they're off and running, and then they sin, they mess things up, and bad things started coming to the world. But I mentioned this last week, maybe it was two weeks ago, but have you ever thought about what would have happened if there had been no sin? If Eve and Adam had not disobeyed God and eaten the forbidden fruit? What would have happened? What would have been their purpose? Why would they have been on earth? It would have been to have fellowship with God. Because God met with them every day, walked with them, talked with them, and they had fellowship, they had communion with one another. They had a relationship. That is the heart of God for you still today. Sin is the barrier to that relationship. The goal of the gospel is not simply to take a bad person and make them a good person. The goal of the gospel is to take someone whose spirit is dead because it's been cut off from God and bring that spirit back into contact with the spirit of God. And in that way, you can experience life as God intended. And so without God, there's a part of you that is starving. 
Without God, there's a part of you that's dying. Without, part of you, without God, if you don't know Christ, there's part of you that's just dead already. The rest of you will catch up in time. And so, and so as we talk about being refreshed today, we're not talking about something that's optional for super-Christians. We're talking about something that's absolutely vital for every child of God. You desperately need His presence in your life. And so we want to give attention to that. We were made for a relationship, but we tend to get distracted from the Lord. And there are a lot of reasons you and I get distracted. He's supposed to be the center of our attention. He's supposed to be the focus of our life. We're supposed to be following Him with all that we have, all that we are. But we get distracted. And, and why do we get distracted? Well, there's a lot of reasons. I'm going to mention a few, and I'm not going to even touch the hem of the garment. But, but we are covered up today with things that make it hard for us to see God and hard for us to hear God. Choices and decisions. You and I have far more choices and decisions confronting us in a day than our parents ever did. I don't care which generation you are sitting here, it's just as true of you. Because each generation has been being confronted with more and more choices and decisions, more options in life. Village in a certain town, and your dad was the blacksmith, you became the blacksmith after him. I mean, and now you can do anything. And there are all kinds of choices available to us. And um, entertainment, we just went through this, we made a change in our house. And uh, we shifted from one form of cable to a satellite. A lot of you have satellite. Said, Don, you ought to get satellite. And, and what I discovered with satellite now is we have hundreds of choices. And I suspect a week from now we'll see all those choices before us and we'll say, you know, there's nothing to watch. <laughs> hundreds of choices. And uh, thousands of libraries of thousands of movies and TV shows, choices. Uh, between 1975 and 2008, the average number of products in a grocery store went from 9,000 products to 47,000 products, choices. That has tapered off, and uh, marketers have discovered that when you and I are presented with too many choices, it actually causes us to be dissatisfied with our situation. In 2003, Barry Schwartz, a researcher, a psychologist at a university, wrote a book called The Paradox of Choice. And he found that too many choices create less happiness and more dissatisfaction. And why is that? Well, the shopper wonders, and the serious shopper is afflicted with this, wonders after their purchase if there was not a better deal somewhere else and uh, that they miss it. 5% of shoppers faced with all those choices walk away. They just walk away. They don't make, even make the purchase. I'm one of those. If there's too many choices, I'll say I'll think about it tomorrow. Uh, the speed of change is overwhelming to us and causes distraction. Information is exploding. Best practices at being whatever you are, a mother, a father, a worker, whatever it is, best practices, always growing. And we're always being told if you want to be good at this or best at that, you're going to have to do it this way. Technology is always changing. The expectations on yourself are constantly exploding because of that, because am I doing it right? Am I doing it the way I ought to do it? Used to be one generation passed their 
experience on to the next generation. But now we don't even listen to the previous generations. We just go Google it. And there's more information than we can possibly process. There are commitments that we are covered up with. We get overcommitted. We say yes too many times and not enough no's. Our schedules, we are always, do you always feel rushed? Anybody here always feel rushed? Um, we always feel rushed. I'd like to say more about it, but we don't have time. <laughs> I was hoping you'd get that. <laughs> Too many problems. We're overwhelmed. Debts, financial pressures, fatigue, hurry, noise. Our possessions. We think we own our possessions. Many times they own us because I got to take care of all this stuff. And then we haven't even talked about work. Where 100 years ago, the average work week was 80 to 100 hours. In 1940, they curbed that down to 40 hours a week as far as how you pay out wages with the Fair Labor Standards Act. But today, those hourly, those hourly weeks, those weekly hours, are creeping back up to 60 and 80 hours a week for people. And uh, we're, we're going back to the future in the way that we're treating ourselves at work. And so... There are a lot of reasons why you and I may be distracted from God. And when you and I get distracted, something shrivels up inside of us. Something that was made only to have fellowship with God. You're a human spirit. And when your spirit is hungry, when your spirit is dry, when your spirit is starving, it affects your soul. And we can sedate ourselves and medicate ourselves and try to run from the emptiness that we feel on the inside. But there's a part of you that will, will only be at rest until your relationship with God is restored. So I want to talk to you today about what it means to be refreshed. And I've got a definition for you in a few moments, but right now I want to talk first to you about why you need it. We're talking about what it means to be refreshed. First of all, why you need it. Again, in verse 15, Paul writes, All who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. Later, he talks about how Onesiphorus was not ashamed of my chains. In contrast to that, these other people were. Now, when he talks about Asia, you've got to understand, last week we talked about his time in Ephesus. And in Ephesus, he preached for a couple of years, and it says everyone in Asia heard the word of the Lord. And a, and a wonderful church was established in Ephesus. Ephesus was in the province of Asia. So when he says, at this stage of his life, everyone in Asia left me, he's talking about a very significant church that he helped start. He's talking about a very significant group of people who were precious to him. And he says, all in Asia turned away from me. And then he names two specific individuals. We don't know who they are, but they were significant to Paul, and apparently it hurt. And these were precious individuals to him. And, and what was their problem? Well, if Onesiphorus was not ashamed of his chains, he seems to be saying that these were ashamed of his chains. So for Paul, at this moment in his life, he has really overwhelming problems. He's sitting in prison. He's literally bound in chains. He's not going to get out of this one. The Holy Spirit has been telling him when his time was drawing near, has been telling him that for a long time. 
And so he knows he's facing death. He's there alone. It was an awful environment, an awful place. And so he was in bondage. He also felt abandoned, betrayed. Everyone in Asia had turned away. And we think of the Apostle Paul and we think, here's a man who walks so closely with God. He's had visions. He's had dreams. God's used him to perform miracles. Surely this man's spirit is always in constant contact with God. This is not a man who needs to catch his breath. This is not a man who needs to turn to Jesus in a fresh new way. But that's not what the text is saying here. He needs relief. At this moment in his life, he needs relief. Now God's going to send it to him through this man Onesiphorus, but, but he needs relief. Now, if the Apostle Paul needed to be refreshed, if the Apostle Paul needed someone else to come alongside and do something for him, don't you know you do too? You have limits. Roger Bannister, first man to break the four-minute mile, passed away earlier this month. Um, it wasn't long after he broke it that the guy he ran against uh, ran it down even lower, and then the two of them raced six months later, and Bannister beat him again. And both of them went under four minutes. And that, that dropping of the four-minute barrier, uh, the, the, the world record for the mile run, uh, continued to drop. Today it's, it's somewhere around 3 minutes and 40, 45 seconds, somewhere in there. And, um, you know, I can't even one run one lap fast enough to do that, much less four. But listen, we watch people running and they break records, we get excited. We watch people swimming, they break records, we get excited. But listen, there's a limit. No one's going to run a mile in a second. No one's ever going to run the mile in one second. We know that, don't you? Anyone going to try that? Not going to happen. And so we know there's a limit to what our bodies can do. And you have limits to what your body can do. There are only 24 hours in a day. You're never going to get more than 24 hours in a day. And, um, and so your body doesn't last forever. There's no inexhaustible supply of energy. You have limits. But listen to me. Our limits are not the problem. It is overloading that is the problem. It's not that you and I have limits. God made us with limits. He designed us with limits. But it's the overloading that's the problem. You say, well, pastor, don't you preach that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you? I think God can do anything through me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, don't take that verse out of context. Try flying with that verse without a plane. Try not eating for six months. That verse was never intended to justify overloading your body and overloading your life. So what do I mean by overloading? It means that you have a breaking point. You know, in the old analogy of the straw that breaks the camel's back, the word picture there is you have a camel, they're incredibly strong, they can carry a, a huge weight, and you just keep putting a piece of straw on a time, a piece of straw at a time, and theoretically, there is a piece of straw that will finally be the straw that's too much, and it will break the camel's back. That's overloading. That's what you and I experience. That's what you and I have to avoid. Distraction comes first. We become vulnerable through distraction. 
Our attention is taken away from the Lord, and suddenly we're looking at something else. And it's preoccupying our thoughts. It's preoccupying our heart. It's preoccupying our energy. It's preoccupying our time. And the Lord is not. And so distraction is what comes first. And we soon are missing God. The thing about overload is that it sneaks up behind you. It doesn't say, you here I come. Overload is like the straw, one at a time, one at a time, one at a time. You don't realize you're about to be overwhelmed. And, and you get overloaded. So overload comes unexpectedly. It happens because you and I get distracted. Now, I want to tell you a secret. Pastors need the sermons they preach. And typically, they are the first congregation that hears the sermon. Years ago, right out of school, Gail and I moved to Southern California. And, man, I had fun. Uh, not on the beach or any of that. But we were, we were involved in a church helping to rebuild a congregation that had almost closed its doors, First Baptist Church of Beverly Hills. Out of that congregation, we helped to start five other churches. I was also assisting, supporting seven other congregations that had been started out of that congregation before I got there. So I was helping 12 other churches. Most of them were language churches. Uh, we were reaching other language groups, people who spoke Spanish or Arabic or Thai or Lao or Hmong or Vietnamese or Hungarian or Arabic. And I would often preach to those groups and help them find places to meet, help them locate pastors, uh, because we, we wanted them to have a shepherd who could speak in their language. And, and in doing that, I worked a lot. Meanwhile, we had our first two children, our first two girls. In fact, both girls here today. Hi, girls. I wore pink today. Oldest daughter, number two daughter, both born at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, where the movie stars went to die. And, um, but that's where they were born. And so Gail had grown up in a town outside Tupelo, Mississippi, about 20 miles away, small town, about 2,000 people, smaller than Wynn. And uh, if you ever get a chance to take a country girl from Mississippi and drop her into a county with 15 million people, I don't recommend it. <laughs> and I've shared part of that story before, but it was hard on her. We moved into a one-bedroom apartment. We had one baby, kept the apartment, had two babies, kept the apartment. And there she was, the young mom, two little babies. And uh, we almost lost her, almost lost me in the process. I found that if I could work or sleep for three nights in a row, I could skip the fourth night and work through the night. I was an, what you call an idiot. <laughs> That's a Greek word. Was that you, Gail? <laughs> I was certified. And, and, um, and uh, I can't tell the whole story, but we, we eventually came back uh, to the South, and 
I began to pastor a little church in North Mississippi, a community that had 800 people in it. So I went from inner city Los Angeles to North Mississippi. I had to, we had to turn something on at night to make noise so we could sleep. It got dark when I went outside. It never got dark in Los Angeles. Uh, in L.A., we had drive-by shootings. In Mississippi at that time, they had roadside hunting. <laughs> and it felt very similar when I would drive past those guys. <laughs> felt just like South Central Los Angeles all over again. And, um, and, and something interesting happened. I began to experience chest pains, George. I had chest pains. And, um, and so I went to a doctor to get it checked out. I was 27 years old, and we went to the doctor, and they ran tests and made me jump, and down, jump up and down, all the things they do. And finally, the doctor sat down with me, sat across from me, and I said, how bad is it? He said, son, there's nothing wrong with you. You need to slow down. You need to slow down. Well, God couldn't have picked a better place for me to do that. And I learned in that small community to slow down, um, how to be still with God, how to listen for his voice and to enjoy his presence. I slowed down. About 10 years later, I began to practice at another busy point in my life where I was bivocational and, and also working in a church in Louisiana and began to take half a day, sometimes two or three days, just to get away and be alone for an extended period of time. And I would do these many retreats, personal retreats. And it was incredible to me how even though I had learned, I still had in, uh, large amounts of accumulated fatigue and I would just pass out, go to sleep for a day or two. And, um, but after that rest, I would begin to hear God again, and his word would come alive, and, and, and my heart would be, would be different, would, would change. And even two years ago, I started doing something I had never really done consistently. I started taking a day off here in Wynn. And um, I still feel a little twinge of guilt when I do that, but I started taking an actual day off. Gail and I get away. And um, we don't do anything in particular. We just take some time off. We need a way to overcome distraction. You and I need a way to overcome distraction and avoid overload. Because as long as you and I are distracted, and definitely when we're overloaded, you and I are not hearing God, and part of us is starving to death. Second thing. Talking about being refreshed and why you need it, I want to talk to you now about how you get it. How you get it. Look at verse 16. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains, but when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. Now, if, if, if I had my Bible open and I was sitting where you're sitting, I would take my pencil and I'd circle that word refreshed. Refresh in verse 16 here literally means to cool off. Something that's hot that's, that needs to cool off. He refreshed me. He cooled me off. Now, other scriptures refer to this concept of refreshing. And different words are translated, but they have similar meetings. For example, in Acts 
Peter is preaching and he says, repent, be converted, that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. It comes from God's presence. It's a birthright as a Christian. Times of refreshing, not one, but multiple times. The word there means to catch your breath. In Acts 3.19, the word refresh means catch your breath. Here it means cool off. There it means catch your breath. Let me give you one more example. This one's on the screen. In Philemon, verse 7, it says, The hearts of the saints, Paul's writing to Philemon, the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Now this word captures what I think is the heart of the concept. Uh, This word refreshed in, in Philemon means to cause or permit one to cease from any movement or labor in order to recover and collect his strength. It means to stop. It means to be still. Motion stops. The idea of an object in motion and ceasing movement. In the picture that's on the screen, you have a picture of a runaway ramp for a truck. How many of y'all have seen one of those before? How many of you have used one? Anybody used one? (laughs) Runaway ramp. You know what those are for? Trucks going down a hill, for whatever reason, they can't stop. They're moving too fast. They can't slow their vehicle down. This is a big pile of sand that they drive their truck off into. Uh, There's one off Highway 65 running between Conway and Branson. You you drive off into that, and uh, yeah, they're going to have to get a tow truck to get it out of there. But there's a bunch of sand, and it's a lot better than running through the trees or off cliffs uh, or in other cars. And so they have runaway ramps. And and it brings that truck safely to a stop. Some of you are like runaway trucks. Your heart, your soul, your mind is so active, so busy, so filled with noise, so filled with distractions. You need to stop. And something needs to bring your motion to a place of stillness. Does Jesus really care about this? In a verse that we studied several years ago, Matthew 11, verse 28, Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I want you to see those words, labor and heavy laden. Labor is a weariness that you cause to yourself. It's that hard work that just wears you out and there's nothing left. And you're spent and you're, you're hurting because of it. The heavy laden is all the stuff that people put on you. It's passive. Heavy laden means people put things on you, expectations, demands, commitments. And Jesus says, if you're a person like that, you need to come to me. Step one, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, who gives you the rest? Who brings your soul to a stop? He does. He said, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find or discover rest for your souls. So he specifies what kind of rest we're talking about. We're not talking about physical rest. He's talking about your soul. Do you know your soul can get worn out? Your soul can get overloaded? Your soul can be distracted? And Jesus says, brother, sister, what you need to do is come to me. You were never meant to do life on your own. You were never meant to be independent. I created you to be dependent. And there's a part of you that needs me. And I need you to come to me. And when you do, here's what we're going to do. 
I'm going to make you stop. I'm going to make you stop. Soul rest. I want to give you my definition of what it means to be refreshed. And I've got three parts to it. I really thought about this a great deal. I've never done this before. But here it is, to be refreshed. The first part of it is to have my soul in a state of stillness. To shut everything out. And to bring myself to a place where basically my soul is quiet. It's okay to talk to your soul. David did it. Bless the Lord on my soul, he says. Soul, bless the Lord. Sometimes I need to say to my soul, shut up. Stop it. Be quiet. Quit it. And um, in order to bring your soul to a state of stillness, you're going to have to remove the things that are distracting you. You're going to have to shut some things out. You're going to have to go somewhere and shut the door. When Jesus taught about prayer, Matthew 6, he said, when you pray, don't do it on the streets to be seen by people. He said, go into your room, close the door, a secret place. And your father who all, is the only one who sees what's in the secret place. He will reward you openly. But it shows you something about the father's heart, doesn't it? That he wants to be alone with you. It's not just for your benefit to shut everything out, but also he wants to be alone with you. But, but to bring to that, that place of stillness, it may be a physical place. It may be some place you have to go off to. It may be a, a room in your house. It may be like the Wesley's mom where she just threw her apron over her head. She had 12 million kids, and, and they knew not to bother mama under the apron. But the point is, is to quiet your soul. Second part of the definition, to have my soul in a state of stillness, releasing the accumulated burden of directing and sustaining my life to the Lord Jesus. I don't think you all realize how much you have taken on the responsibility to keep yourself alive and safe. And you need to understand that it's not your job to take care of you. The Lord Jesus takes care of us. Now, I'm not talking about being irresponsible, but I am talking about the attitude of your heart. Where am I looking for my safety my rescue, and my care. And sometimes you and I are so busy trying to plan our life, scope it out, determine what I need to move ahead to be successful. I, I'm so preoccupied with what I got to do for the next step, the next 20 steps, planning, having a five-year plan for my life, whatever the case may be, that all of that has to go. There's already a plan for my life, and he owns it. And he doesn't give it to us all at once, right? He gives it to us step by step. And I've got to take care of that. It is an incredible burden to own the responsibility of governing and directing your own life. He is Lord. And we are to follow him. And I will never be refreshed in my heart until I surrender that responsibility into his hands. And then simply follow him. Third thing is this. Rediscovering the simple and satisfying joy of being loved by him. Jesus loves me, this I know. Do you? Do you? Yeah, we know what the Bible says, but do you know it? The Lord Jesus wants to come and meet with you in such a clear and unmistakable way that you will know his love. He wants to capture your attention. He wants you to see his beauty. He wants you to know his majesty. He wants you to sense his power. He wants you to experience his love. We need that.
And so Jesus gives it, and we find it, we discover it. I think one of the most basic ways we do that is when we spend time alone with God. I'll talk a little bit more about some of this tonight. But one of the most basic things you, you and I can do is learn to take some part of our day and to be alone with God. Not just to read my Bible and check it off and say I have my daily Bible reading. Because the Bible is not just a book to be read, it's a window to look through. And as a window, it is intended that you see God and hear God through the medium of Scripture. And so that's one of the basic things you can do. And then you can take retreats. There's all kinds of things you can do to go through this process where you still and quiet your soul. He has to do his part, but he says, come to me. But let me tell you about a way he does it that may surprise you. He gives us rest, but he also uses others to help us get there. He uses other brothers and sisters to help us get there. How does he do that? He sends someone to make deposits in your life. Look at verse 16 again. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me. Now, how did he do that? He did it more than once, often refreshed me. How? When he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. He came after Paul. He looked for Paul. He sought Paul out. And in that very act, he ministered to him. And he blessed him. We all need someone. Paul needed someone to make deposits in his life. We need people to make deposits in our life. We have, um, we have your life, your soul, is like a, a bank. And, um, and when you minister to somebody, when you serve somebody, or you just work, or you do entertainment, or you listen to things, or you talk about things, whatever's going on, you're spending part of your life. And uh, I tell you, some of the people who are worst about it are pastors and deacons and church leaders. We just let people make withdrawals from us all the time because we figure that's what we're supposed to do. And in a sense, when we serve others, that's what happens. People make withdrawals. We have, we have so much in our, in our tank, and people make withdrawals. They take from us. They take from us. They take from us. The key of being refreshed is, is filling your reservoir back up. You've got to get some more stuff in there. You don't want to go bone dry. Remember the overload sneaks up on you? If you're constantly, there's an outflow of your life, and you're not spending time alone with the Lord, you're not filling up your reservoir. You don't have anything to give. Now, he taught in John 7 that when you know him, when you believe him, the Holy Spirit in you is like water that just flows out of your life, like streams overflowing your life. But if I don't have a relationship with him, the well runs dry. But not only that, I need people who are going to make deposits in my life. I need brothers and sisters who love Jesus, and because they love Jesus, they love me. And because they love me, they come along and they say a word. Maybe God prompted them to do it. But they say a word, it's a word of encouragement, or they do something, um, or they... I go visit somebody and they've set up a room where I can go stay, I, just different things. They're making deposits. And everybody needs somebody who makes deposits in their life. It may be a dear friend who's a Christian. It may be a small group. And, uh, you know, we've stressed the importance of being part of a small group, a small group that you share with, that you're honest with. It may be your pastor, shepherd, Sunday school teacher. 
But God uses people like that to refresh us, to help bring our soul to a place of stillness where we can be opened up once again to the activity of the Holy Spirit. So we talked about why, to combat distractions, avoid overload. How do we get it? Only from Jesus and the people he sends. The third thing, last thing is this. I want to talk to you about how keeping it requires sharing it. How keeping it requires sharing it. Look at Proverbs 11.25 on the screen. It says, whoever brings blessing, and in some translations it says, the generous soul, whoever brings blessing, it, and it, it literally describes someone who gives gifts, who's a generous soul, passing it out. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. And this is a biblical, it's a universal truth that I am blessed as I bless. That as I give, I receive. And I can't outgive God, but there's a, there's a supernatural process here that as I give to others, it is then that others can then give to me. If you're giving, if you're making deposits in other people's life is just a one-way street, and you don't ever let anybody else do that for you. I said, you're going to run dry. And so keeping this refreshed state, this keeping my distractions uh, to, to a minimum, not being overloaded, keeping my focus on God, a big part of that occurs as I give and as I receive. But if my Christian life is one where I read my Bible and then go do what I want to do, if I don't experience or sense the prompting of the Holy Spirit to minister to others, you know, sometimes you're driving down the road, people come to mind. I don't believe that's an accident. You're sitting at home, somebody comes to mind, not an accident. And as, as you're praying for someone and you realize they're in trouble and they have needs and God speaks to you, puts an idea in your mind, puts an idea in your heart, that's not an accident. And the Bible says that if you're in that kind of relationship with God and you're doing ministry on that basis of the Spirit's leading and prompting, that person who waters will be watered himself. That person who gives will be enriched. You can't keep it. You can't sit on it. Sometimes I think we have over-educated the people in our pews to where they're going to explode. We have taught truth and taught truth and taught truth and taught truth and taught truth. But truth is to be applied. Truth is to be carried out in our daily life. And this is a ministry that every believer can have. This, this ministry of refreshing others is not just a ministry for super saints, um, for those who have exceptional training and education. The ministry of refreshing others is for every Christian, and God will use you in that way.